Okay, and we are live. This is episode number eight of Absolute AppSec. Uh, I'm Ken Johnson. Um, got co-host Seth. Seth, you want to say hi? Hey, everybody. Welcome yet again. <laughs> Seth Law. And uh, special guest tonight, Neil. Um, I'm not... Neil, can you say your last name? Because I always screw it up. <laughs> it's Matatol. Matatol. I always say it wrong. So, Neil... Um, yeah, I don't know what it is about. I think it's the spelling. It's just always like kind of screws with, I don't know if everyone has that same problem. But anyways, moving forward. Um, yeah, so we've got Neil with us. Um, you want? I mean, yes, please say hi, Neil. How's it going, everyone? I guess uh, I can't answer. Yeah. Well, they can in the live chat. They can answer in the live chat. So, yeah. I guess they could say hi back. So. Um, I'm going to give a little introduction, uh, you know, specific to Neil, obviously. So uh, I've known Neil uh, since like I, you and I started communicating pretty heavily back at uh, like your tweet. You were working at Twitter. I was working at living social and we were both working uh, security for rails, heavy rails shops, Ruby on rails and like trying to keep up with all the stuff that was, happening cvs being released keeping on top of stuff that wasn't always public so we were basically sharing information um back and forth and and like that's how we started um communicating but in terms of uh in terms of you know sort of uh well you know what before we get before we get to that um uh let me mention a few other things so uh neil is the creator of secure headers. So it's a, um, it's a gem that's, that basically helps do, It's exactly like it sounds like there's going to, <laughs> it's security centric headers. Um, it helps, uh, set security centric headers in your rails applications. Uh, Neil's going to talk about that in, in a, in a much more educated fashion. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about CSP. Uh, so, but that's sort of Neil's background. He has a lot of, um, time spent with dealing with web standards and um, a lot of insight there. So we're going to ask him some questions about all that um, web security specific standards. Uh, and then um, he's got a blog. So some of the things that we talk about, they're going to be referenced or he, he's written blog posts that can be referenced. Um, you can go to oreoshake.github.com. That's his blog. And I think I've introduced, hopefully I've, I've introduced the, uh, you correctly, Neil, and um, uh, we can, you can start chatting. So, uh, uh, yeah, uh, thanks for the introduction. Well, yeah, I, I mean, before we get into it, let's give you a chance to kind of give us a rundown of what you're currently doing, um, where, like, where you're at, what your kind of current research projects are, if you just want to give us a little bit of background before we dive into the topics, I guess, that we have. Sure. Um, so I've been with GitHub for about three and a half years now, and I was sort of started out on the security team, and then I was on the AppSec team, and then the AppSec team split into product security and application security. Ken's on application security. I'm on product security. And for the longest time, the split was mostly superficial. And in recent, uh, I would say months even, it became more official, which actually let me focus 
more on things that, uh, you know, I get to focus day to day as opposed to sort of the onslaught of unplanned work that can come with the app site role. Mm -hmm. um, so, so sort of less bounty, more features. Uh, and it's let me focus really on sort of uh, the whole account security story at GitHub. Uh, so first, that's going to start off with just better notifications about activity on your account. I did a quick comparison with GitHub, Facebook, Stripe, Heroku, um, sort of companies that may or may not have a good overlap with GitHub users as well. And it turns out we were way behind the curve on even simple things such as email notifications. Um, we were good about, you know, hey, your password changed or hey, an SSH key changed, but there were lots of gaps where you wouldn't be notified otherwise. Um, that's just sort of the beginning that helps us build just sort of a better story about getting people to be more aware about the security. And that'll spin off into sort of a like account security checkup sort of deal, which I think, you know, bigger companies like Facebook and Google are doing a really good job of where they just sort of say, hey, you know, maybe you want to take a look at your account, highlight some things that are maybe potentially, you know, extra risky as opposed to things that are maybe just sort of FYIs. Um, and then from there, just really like making the whole account security process like easy to use, foolproof as much as possible because account lockouts are a huge problem. Um, anyone who's implemented two-factor and has maintained it for years knows that this is going to be like the number one reason your support team might not be your best friend at all times because a lot of us do a really poor job at making their job even remotely easy. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, with the introduction of things like delegated recovery and just sort of a more modern thinking towards the approach, I think we can make a big impact on both the number of people who enroll in 2FA and the number of people who continue to be enrolled in 2FA. In terms of recovery, I know you've, um, I, I know you've mentioned, I've heard, and by the way, sorry, I didn't mention that we worked together. Yes, we worked together at GitHub. I should have mentioned that. Um, but yeah, so, uh, I've heard you mention Google before as, and I, th I think it was in a positive light as an example of um, account recovery. Uh, am I, if so, or if not, like if you've got a, a good example of someone who's doing that properly uh, and why, that would be awesome. Uh, well, it, it's important to remember like the audience, the audience is very important here. Google's user base is, well, there's, a, you know, most GitHub users will have a Google account. You know, only a fraction of Google users have a GitHub account. So we have the benefit of, like, having sort of a, a more technical audience. So what works for Google might not necessarily work for us. Um, I do think that Google and Facebook, based on, I don't know, a few days of research in a very unscientific way, I do think they are, like, the perfect example of how to do it. And so I think everyone should strive to do like at least what they do and then maybe something a little bit better. Um, you know, there's a lot of people who say that uh, having to provide a phone number has a lot of drawbacks. There's some privacy concerns. There's the, you know, attack at the what, SS7, whatever. Uh, then there's the, hey, I called your phone company and said I was you problem. Like, you know, some people don't want that option. And a lot of times to get these sort of higher levels of security, you need this extra level of recovery. And now this extra level of recovery has sort of lowered your bar. And, and a lot of these systems aren't very flexible in that regard. Um, so I think what we're shooting for is to find like the perfect middle ground of like encouraging the low risk users to enroll in two factor, giving the, you know, the incredibly paranoid people and the high risk accounts 
the option to just really have this super lockdown mode with like no options whatsoever. Um, and I think Google gives the most flexibility in that regard, but I don't know that their model is perfect for GitHub users. You know, like yeah. I was kind of looking at and the other apps, I was kind of thinking like who realistically could mandate 2FA for all their users? And I don't think GitHub is in that position. We have we have lots of people who are, are less technical um, and more likely to become locked out. Um, but I was looking at companies like maybe Heroku. You know, like their user base seems to be almost mostly technical and not that only technical people can handle 2FA. It's just I've seen higher numbers of enrollment in technical user bases than non-technical. And that makes sense. I mean, that's where a lot of it comes from, right? I, I mean, this is this is incredibly relevant. A couple of weeks ago, we had Kevin Cody on, and he ended up locking himself out of his 2FA on GitHub. I don't know if you heard that. Um, and it was mainly because he pulled away the recovery option to go to his phone, right, Ken? If I understood that right. Uh, actually, it was a con. It was really, yeah. It was basically it was a, it was kind of a, a weirdness with the Duo app, where if you gotcha. do recovery with the Duo app, you can, meaning like you, uh, you're 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 saying uh, I want to kind of like. I guess I'm I'm trying to switch phones. I think that was what he was saying. Like you tell the app that's what you're trying to do. And so when he took a picture of the QR code uh, from GitHub, it guessed and said, oh, this must be what you wanted for your... Um, for like, your personal or, account. Like, yeah, so it over... Yeah, right. that's right. It overwrote his... Uh, GitHub. Yeah, exactly. Exactly what you said. And I mean, so, that's, that's not a typical kind of user, you know, hey, I forgot my password issue or 2FA issue. But it, like, I, I don't know. I mean, this is part of why I love doing this podcast, Neil, because you're, you're, you're bringing up a whole bunch of stuff that, you know, I'm not necessarily in that product security role, but I do run into apps and it would be interesting to think about it from this perspective rather than just, hey, do you have 2FA? Uh, like, and what that actually introduces on a development perspective or, or, or to the developers and how much overhead goes into that. Because we don't think about that a lot of times coming from the outside is, hey, is 2FA available? And that's about as far as we go. Yeah, it's a lot of people have opinions. Um, I think a lot of people haven't spent much time in the trenches in that regard. Yeah. And a lot of people say, I've, I've straight up seen people laughing at other people on Twitter because they use SMS. And then so-and-so might get locked out of their account because they had TOTP with no backups. And it's like, well, that SMS is sounding pretty good right about now. Um, you know, it's that second half of the story that you really have to focus on. And I mean, personally, I use Authy because my phone bricks all the time. Uh, I when, when Twitter released their two-factor, there was a story about losing a phone in the ocean. Uh, that story was not made up. That was my phone. I had to get my account unlocked, but luckily I was an employee. Um, shit happens. 2FA is hard. There's no like solution for everyone. Trying to find that link now. <laughs> <laughs> because that is awesome. Uh, that is awesome. Um, no, I think that's what's interesting about sort of Neil, what's most interesting because a lot of the, the people in our network I, I, or friends or whatever, we, we are more on the side of like trying to 
and and to be fair, Neil's done a bunch of that. But in terms of like um, our primary core focus, it's usually like finding vulnerabilities and then yeah. um, yes, providing the solution. But we're not really thinking about the core core functionality um, as it relates to like for instance, the uh, like GitHub has the um, commit signing. Well, that's not that's no simple you know feat whatsoever, and it doesn't you know. It's features like that, that, that like Neil, you know, has uh, dealt with and, and it's just, it's incredibly complex. And I, and I, Neil, that makes sense what you're saying with regards to the user pit really depends heavily in terms of your design decisions on, on your user base. Now I'm <clears throat> like, <clears throat> sorry about that. Um, and, and, and those of you that don't know Neil's background, he actually, he worked with me for, uh, you know, all of like two months at a consulting firm at one point. But I remember having discussions with you, or I, I can't remember, but I, I'm pretty sure it was with you um, about, guess what? I don't necessarily want to be on the offensive side. I want to be on the defensive side, right? Um, and you wanted more of more code. And at the time, the consulting firms and the, like the application security space, it was all about offense, right? It was about hey, we're going to go scan this app, we're going to find vulnerabilities, and then we're going to tell you generically how to fix it, right? Um, and it wasn't scan source code. It was, yeah. here's a URL and some creds, maybe. Yeah. And then half the time, the app wouldn't work, or it was all manual, right? Um, I mean, anybody who's been in the space has dealt with that before. But, you know, we've seen the industry kind of grow up, and I think you were on the forefront of that, for sure because you were more focused on the product side and actually how it, how the rubber hits the road with the developers. Um, I mean, what, what has been your career progression as far as that goes, right? Getting into product security versus kind of this application security offensive role. So it all started with eBay. Um, I started selling things that my dad's warehousing business would acquire when people would go out of business. And I thought like HTML was the coolest thing in the world. Like, Turning some characters into a bulleted list blew my mind when I was 15, 16, whatever. Uh, just by happenstance, like uh, they, my school started offering a C++ class, and a friend of mine was taking it, and he convinced me to take it, and I fell in love with coding. And I love writing code. I love dealing with code. I like making code pretty. I like learning new ways to code. I like learning new languages. Just really an obsession with code. Um, when I graduated college, my internship role offered me sort of a temporary role while they found something better for me um, just because of timing. And that was still just straight development role. I had not done any security up to this point whatsoever. Um, as they were waiting for the other role to say, they said, hey, we have this other thing in security. And I, I, was, I mean, I was vaguely interested and I wanted to try it out. And they said, come up with a training course on OWASP Top 10. And so through learning the OWASP Top 10, I was like, okay, I like hacking things. And I love the fact that it comes back to code and that you can fix it. Um, I did sort of that offensive thing for a few years. Uh, and definitely the consulting gig was the last straw because that was like pure black box for the most part. I'm sorry, my dog loves to bark. Um, and so I think at that point I had become burnt out. Like I, I said, instead of giving me an URL, just give me the code. I want to look at the code. I can find 10 times the bugs looking at the code than I could poking at some a few endpoints. And after that, I went, actually went into a full-time development role. I thought, forget this security thing. Like, I'm done with this. I want to code. 
Um, I did that for a really long time until one of my friends was like, hey, what if you wanted to like be a defender where you could write code, but you're still doing security? It's a really good thing to get into and uh, like forever thankful. And from that point on, I was a defender uh, starting at Twitter through GitHub and I'm not looking back. Cool. I definitely respect like the offensive stuff is super important. And I, I love seeing people blow my mind all the time. But for me, it's just like, oh, just give me the code. Totally, totally can, uh, I mean, can, to can to I think both Seth and I can totally relate to that for sure. Um, who was the friend, by the way? What well, wasn't Justin, was it? Um, it was Alex Nolan, actually. Oh, okay. He, and uh, started going back to the, the human aspect and the different use case aspect. He's a great person. If you can ever, like, find a chance to talk to him for, like, 10, 15 minutes, it probably changes perspective on a lot of things. And he was actually behind the original two-factor implementation at Twitter. And for all the flack it got, I think, you know, I think he did a great job. And I think everything he did was spot on. But users are hard. Twitter's a hard use case to solve. I mean, billions of users on billions of devices and billions of living situations makes it really weird. You know, I feel like I've met Alex at AppSec USA 2016 or something in a Netflix talk. I have to ask him. I'm pretty sure I've I'm pretty sure I've met him. Well, he was the one that presented with me at uh, BlastCon when we did the secure automation talk. I mean, he's been around the OWASP, OWASP circuit for quite a while. Oh well, maybe we should uh, maybe we should reach out to him at some point. Yeah, for sure. Oh, speaking of OWASP circles and conferences, before I forget, uh, I did want to um, briefly have you explain the, uh, I mean, just tell everybody about local MocoSec and, and of course the uh, diversity uh, fund, which I, I think probably relates pretty well to, you know, uh, to your story. So um, yeah, if you could just let everyone in on like your, what you're doing there. Okay, so the quick five-year history is that uh, this, so this will be the fifth conference I've organized and the second one that I've founded. I also helped found AppSec California. And every single one of these events has been very much like defensive-focused. Um, there's definitely been some attack stuff in there as well. And they've all been your sort of four-track, like, mega conferences in a sense. Um, I mean, I don't know if four-tracks is considered mega, but to me it kind of is. Uh, so... Uh, Jim Manico, okay. <laughs> Jim Manico basically nerd sniped me into organizing an event out here, out in Hawaii. And uh, when I said, well, I want to make it a single track event. I want to do invite only for the first round. I want it to be defender and developer centric stuff, you know, only. And, you know, everyone was on board. We got Jeremiah Grossman on board. And uh, I think we put together a really good lineup. Um, you can go to locomocosec.com. Everyone's listed there. Uh, single track, two-day event, April 5th and 6th. We've got training two days before. Um, and, uh, yeah, we hope it'll be a great event. We also have sponsorship opportunities, obviously. But one of the things we're really trying to push is our diversity inclusion sponsorship, where all the money that comes in from that uh, sponsorship will put directly to the hotel, airfare, and training costs for someone to attend the event from a, you know, a background where maybe they haven't had a chance to have their employer sponsor such an event, or maybe they just can't afford it. I mean, it's not a, it's not a cheap trip and we're not trying to discount that, 
but uh, getting as many people as we can to the event is great. And uh, people like Uber and Breakman Pro have stepped up to help fund some of these people. And we've got four people going so far, and uh, we definitely have room for a lot more. And then finally, whatever loose change is left over from the travel will go directly to charity. We're not looking to directly profit off of this. Yes, we're filling our room block. Yes, we're helping cover the cost of food. But like, this is like, we're not, we're not doing this to uh, just get more money. Yeah, no, and I get it. I feel like I've known you long enough. That's that totally makes sense and is in line with uh, with who you are. So um, that's awesome that you guys are putting this on. I can't wait. I mean, what is it like? A, it's very it's very cold and disgusting here in Northern Virginia. Uh, so we got about a month before there's some nice. Oh yeah, I mean, I did I mention at the top that you're based out of Hawaii? I don't know if I did. Yeah. And I don't know that I mentioned it when I was talking about Locomogosek either, but it's in Kailua, Kona, on the big island of Hawaii, which is about a 15-minute drive from where I am right now. That's that's terrible uh, working condition. Yeah. <laughs> as, <laughs> as Seth is in Salt Lake. <laughs> I, I, I should show you the you know, foot and a half of snow that's right outside my window here. And yeah, it's been a it's been a bad couple of weeks in Salt Lake, so. Yeah, I just remember one Monday you being like, um, I was like, you know, how to go over the weekend? And you're like, yeah, it's like two feet of snow. So I spent half the day trying to, you know, my garage. And, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, Neil's got rough, real rough. <laughs> yep. Can't complain. <laughs> so before we move on to uh, another topic, I did want, uh, there was a good, uh, this was a pretty good question. And it was, you know, how do you how do you all feel? But Neil, I'm gonna uh, obviously definitely want to get your take. Um, but it's how do you all feel about passwordless gaining more traction? And um, I I have to see what all passwordless because it's been a while since I've looked at that passwordless options are out there. Well, it's funny that that question came up because Alex Smolin was one of the first people I know to actually like provide and I believe it was just a Ruby gem so you could have password authentication to your app. Uh, funny timing. I don't know if that's related, but uh, I mean, I like the idea. Passwords suck. We, we need to change something. Um, you know, relying on an email address is not exactly my favorite thing, but I don't exactly have a better alternative unless it's like the social type stuff. Yeah, I will always. I, I will say I do enjoy the Slack magic link. Um, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna put in a uh, link here. But yeah, I love the Slack because I always set incredibly ridiculously long passwords, and when it comes to doing that on the phone, like that's the only app that I found that has a good. Then again, I don't I don't really install a whole lot of apps, um, but that app is just the only one that I found that makes it pretty seamless. And for those who don't know, I'm sure most people on here do know um, when you go to say, Hey, on the app, I want to add an account. You put in your email address. Um, it will say, Hey, which space do you want to sign into? Okay. Do you want a magic link or do you want to put your password in? If you do the magic link, you check your email, you click on the link, it redirects and you, you know, it's signed you in on the Slack app through email to Safari to, uh, opening the Slack app and, and having you signed in. So it's kind of like, um, I mean, Neil, would you say it's pretty much like a, almost like a password reset token in a way in that it's, 
the rules around it, I would think, but I could be totally off base. Like yeah, the I mean, requirements. Mag magic links are magic, right? Gets you one click to your account. Just don't send it to Ken, right? That's, that's the, that's the, I mean, obviously, like someone has to say use cases matter, right? Like, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I mean, you know, and to be fair, right? That you know, getting rid of the passwords that, that definitely makes it easier. I, I think the use of password managers, whether that's one password or LastPass, makes that easier as well, but not quite as easy as the magic link goes, right? Because then at that point, I have to generate a password, I have to store it in one location and then I have to bring it back up in my mobile app to sign in and it, it still works, right? Um, but not everybody has the, I, I, especially when you're talking outside of the tech community again, not everybody's using a password manager or they're just using iCloud app, you know, keychain or whatever it is to, to store all their passwords. And that's not, yeah. I mean, that works. It, it's kind of the same idea but you're giving Apple all that control again. So keychain in the cloud. Keychain in the cloud. It is. There's other forms of like passwordless passwordless authentication. Like uh, I think WhatsApp, all you have to do is prove you own the phone number on the device you're using or something. I think Signal does something similar. I mean, I think I think we all realize that passwords suck. Oh yeah, they definitely do, right? I, I mean there's other ways to prove identity without passwords, right? And that's what what the especially like the cell phone providers you're getting at, right? I, I worked for a company for a little while that was getting into that space. And that was one of the things they were starting to pull was, hey, if we if we go talk to all the cell phone vendors, we know exactly who you are based on the EMID of your phone, right? So why do I need a password at that point to log into my online banking if I can provide that same information or that same level of even location information because of, because of the device that you're holding and where it's at, right? So... But I don't think that one's quite come to fruition yet, as opposed to something like the magic link. There's easier, easier ways to do it. I do like the fingerprint option as well. I'm like, so my bank has that option. Um, uh, the company who does my home security has that option. And frankly, like, I'm not really, and I think Kevin Cody talked about this in a little bit, which was, you know, What's your threat model include? You know, me choosing a, a crappy password or someone getting my fingerprint. I mean, I'll, I'll probably, I'll probably, I probably shy more away from using a crappy password that I won't remember when I have to go, you know, sign into a mobile app um, versus, you know, being okay with like, yes, that's my fingerprint. I'm fine with that. Mm -hmm. So that's my personal opinion, you know, like, no product design, design decision or anything like that. To go back to the password managers, and I know we already agreed that passwords suck, um, but like password managers suck too. And websites that disallow password managers really suck. And like you mentioned, password managers on mobile are pretty bad. It's getting a little bit better. It's really good if you trust Apple with your passwords. Otherwise, mostly not. Yep. So like, I mean, I, I get really pissed off when websites especially when they tweet about it. And unfortunately, it's, it's someone who shouldn't be tweeting about it. Say like, we disable password managers for security. We disable paste for security. And it's just, it pisses me off. <laughs> I am kind of interested in this new like web auth end spec. I don't know if it's part of the web auth end spec, but it's basically supposed to make credential managers suck less is kind of the interpretation I have of it. Yeah. 
actually any interpretation because I forgot to, I was going to do a little homework on it. And then because when I brought it up with, I think it was, again, I think it was Kevin Cody. Um, nobody knew anything about it. I was like, oh, I've heard about it, but I like, I haven't really dug in. Forgot to do the homework. So if you, if like your interpretation would still be more useful than the rambling nonsense I've given so far. Well, if I leave it at make password managers suck less, I think that's probably the best I can do. So I know the spec has moved around. It used to be like a separate spec and then it got absorbed into a different one. But I, I hope what it's doing is it's taking away like the heuristics that these password managers have to do on where your username and password field is. And I remember one of the original goals was to make it so that when they fill the value, it's not accessible by JavaScript. I believe they've gone back on that for reasons I don't, I don't really, I never looked into it. Um, but that's kind of the gist I get out of it. Cause I've been on like github.com and it's like, you know, who do you want to review this pull request? And you see that little asterisk, like, like ready to fill in your password into that field. And it's like, no, I would not like to assign it to my password. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's like the use cases, right? And, and again, that, that kind of goes back to the security versus usability uh, discussion that we've been having is that, you know, especially on the offensive side, we don't think about usability as a real issue, but that's what controls a company's bottom line realistically. Right? If, if you make it too hard to use 2FA, guess what? No one's going to use 2FA. Or a password manager, maybe you start getting less users, right? And especially in the tech space. So is it worth it to the company to actually implement those features? Just because some consultant came in and said, "Hey, you should you should do this, right? You should turn off autocomplete. You should not allow people to cut and paste into this field." And that, I, I mean, especially on mobile, that's that's an awful thing. Because I remember doing that when mobile apps first came out. Hey, you shouldn't be able to, you know, cut things out of the password field in your app. And now I'm thinking, man, it's probably it was a bad decision because I gave all this code. Like, hey, you shouldn't be able to actually paste things into it either. Crap, right? That means that people are choosing. You know, QWERTY is their password for their app because that's the only thing that's available to them. So, yeah. yeah. I don't know. I, I don't think there's a there, there's a good solution. WebAuthn looks promising, but I don't know how far along they are in actually developing that standard and when it's going to be implemented. <laughs> Sorry, I'm laughing at the chat. Um, because there was a question about, does anyone use hardware? And, uh, like, for two-factor auth and um, YubiKey was discussed and then Brian Gray. So Ken Toller had asked that question and Brian Gray shot back with uh, like the duo SAML issue from, uh, I believe that post was, let's say 20. Yeah, it was today. Um, and then, so he he said, uh, even if you move to YubiKey, you're one XML parser away from a bad time. <laughs> He's not wrong. <laughs> so... Yeah, no, he's not, right? I don't know. We've probably beat up on password managers and the crappy state of passwords enough for today. Um, another good question that came in, though, in the chat was, what do you think is the best approach to make developers, to, to make your developers care about security, right? Um, like, you've been dealing with developers in that space for longer, right? So... What are your thoughts? Um, first off, you, you don't be a jerk. Um, you can't sour that relationship. It, you lose the trust. The trust is gone forever. Um, 
I think uh, El Camtuf. I don't I have no idea how you're supposed to pronounce it. And I can't remember his last name either, but his his handle on Twitter is El Camtuf. Yeah. Uh, put out a thing about how to run an effective like product security organization, and he talks about this as well. And he talks about like sort of the the rogue employee going off script who's like thou shalt not and pointing fingers and how that can really just like be counterproductive to everything you're trying to do. Um, so yeah, building that relationship is, is very crucial. I don't know how you do it. It's specific to each organization. Um, some people just have a good friendly regard with everyone. Some people will help out when, you know, maybe not directly related to what the AppSec team's trying to do, but you can help push things along in a positive way. Um, on the, the process and technical side though, like building a culture of security such that it's like really built into the processes makes a lot of sense. And, and that widely varies from company to company. Um, like at GitHub, all that means is like our automated tooling will run every time someone opens a pull request or pushes to a pull request and our automated robot will go in and throw in only the things it's very, very comfortable about warning people about because again, if you're too noisy, no one will listen to you. Mm -hmm. um, and so like like things like that, like so that example I mentioned, I'll, I'll elaborate on that. Um, we only, we run breakdown on every push and we alert people on new warnings um, in that PR, only the ones that are high or medium confidence. And we've disabled a ton of rules that we feel are either not important enough to ask people to change or are just sort of too noisy to begin with. Um, the idea being that the pull request by the time it's merged, all those things should be resolved or there should be some sort of discussion around it. Um, these are sort of, you know, must act situations, more or less like a lint test that won't fail the build. Um, once that code is merged, then we run a second scan with all the bells and whistles turned off, no filtering whatsoever. And the only person that sees those results is, you know, the AppSec team, because in theory they can glance through it real quickly and decide what requires further action. Like that, Building into the existing workflow that already existed before the AppSec team did anything meant that we were pretty much guaranteed to be successful unless we turned people away. Yeah. Like we didn't ask people to do anything differently than they were already doing. You know, these comments came in, you know, they were a bot, yes, but as long as the comments were always valid, people didn't mind. It was just as if the AppSec team themselves had commented on the issue. Um, so the fact that nobody had to change what they were doing meant that nobody had any trouble adjusting to this whatsoever. Um, because it was part of the normal workflow, because they were part of used to seeing those comments and they were used to seeing people uh, fix them, we didn't have to pester people to fix the issues. It was just culturally, that's just what you did. You cared about the results of this tool and you wanted to do the right thing. I mean, deep down inside, everybody wants to do the right thing. Everyone wants to write the correct code. No one wants to push crappy code. Uh, I mean, unless they're in some ridiculous deadline, um, but that's a different topic. But like people want to do the right thing, and if you if you encourage them to do the right thing and you don't make them feel bad, they'll try to do the right thing. Yeah, I mean it's interesting. I mean you've touched on a couple of of really good points there, right? You know, I mean relationships. Number one, right? What sort of relationship does security or product security, application security have with the rest of the organization with development? Uh, the amount of noise that you're introducing, and the amount of work that you're introducing into their pipeline, right? It's, you know, it's smart to fit into it. That, that's one thing that I never liked about being a consultant was coming in once a year, handing off a report. The developers talk about it, but you, could, you, you knew that once you walked away, 
it was up to them to actually implement. There's not a lot of care in feeding. And whether or not they took it for what it was worth really depended on those developers and who got that message, right? Um, I mean, it, it, recently I was dealing with an organization that you know I came into and they're like, hey, we've got like a dependency check style application that that's checking all of our pull requests for you know, dependency vulnerabilities, right? And we've enabled it across a hundred different repositories and no one's looking at it because it's too chatty and it's blocking pushes. And so we just ignore it and we move on, right? And I'm like, so you're paying money to actually do this and you know, you never thought about what was actually being implemented, right? And how to take care of it when it came out. So the first thing that we did is I'm like, hey, guess what? We're gonna make your life easier. We're just gonna rip this out, right? <laughs> and then we're gonna start and do it similar to what you're saying, right? Is guess what? We're gonna take a look and we're gonna say, guess what? High risk, you know, high severity rated vulnerabilities. Yeah, we'll let you know that they're there and we can probably block on those and give you a little cup, you know, automate some comments around it on how to fix it. But that's going to be it for now. Anything else, it'll go to us, and we can put in a ticket if it's really something we're concerned about. But you know, realistically, there's only a, a there's only a small amount that a developer needs to care about when they're pushing something out, right? So. Definitely, and I think that touches on like a, an important point, not really to the original question, but um, you, you talked about a tool that was in place that was basically going to dev null. Yep. And it's, it's like, well, they spent the money and the time to develop and, and do this thing, and it just went nowhere. And uh, like when you're trying to scale an AppSec program, because typically the AppSec team is usually understaffed when you want to do like a, a engineer to engineer ratio or whatever, like I always feel like we never have enough staff, even though I'm in a situation where we might actually have enough staff. But like the, the whole idea is like don't do anything unless it scales. Yep. Like obviously there's going to be the manual one-off code reviews, and the only way to scale code reviews is like better automation in a sense. But um, it was really interesting once I sort of that light bulb went off. It's like if you can't automate this, and if those results are not going to be useful, then you are literally wasting your time. Gee, th thanks for summing up my career there, man. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you charge for it, right? <laughs> No, no, I, like, but but I totally agree, right? As I, you know, as I deal with more organizations, I realize, you know, especially those first few years of figuring out, like, being a penetration tester, that most of that, most of those reports were just noise to 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 the different orgs. Yes, I, you know, some of them would actually implement it, but I mean, Ken, how many times did we go back to an organization? like a year or two years later and find the same thing we did the year previously. Uh, almost every time. Yeah. To the point where that's like item number one on the checklist. Just check what we did before or first. You know. Or, I mean, they would, they would, they would fix, hey, oh, wait, they found SQL injection on this one parameter in this one page, and they'd go fix it there. But it it's too much work to go through the whole code base. And so you just have to go to, like, the other parameter on that page, and it was still vulnerable to SQL injection. Right? Oh yeah, and that's 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 sort of what I was referring to is the category itself, as well as I mean, there are instances where they just don't fix that exact instance. Um, but like, usually in see something as serious SQL as you know, serious as SQL injection or something like that, they'll fix that that one instance. But but see that that's that's sort of the the difference. Like, okay, Neil, when you're when you're working with the quality of developers at like a Twitter or a GitHub, um, 
that's admittedly a very different crew than um like how do i say this without being a jerk because i don't want to be a jerk but i am saying like there are differences just, just in developer skill sets just beat What's up that? on angie's list again <laughs> yeah yeah uh no i'll leave angie's list alone they probably have great developers yeah i'll leave them alone. um but you know there's there's definitely like uh and not just like crews of developers and whatever like space i'm trying not to like pick on anyone i'm trying hard um because I could, but uh, but we won't. But uh, also, like code that's out, like apps that are outsourced and o- to overseas, where it's just like you know cheap labor essentially. Um, so those are another. Uh, how did I get off on this tangent, anyways? What was it going? Oh, right. So like, yeah. So there's a there's a different um, level of developer. I guess what I'm saying is, Neil's Neil's. Have you? Let me ask you, Neil. Have you dealt with any? like lower caliber of developer uh in your career i have worked with a a wide variety of people in the industry okay that was very political thank you politically correct yeah (laughs) i'm trying not to be a jerk but i think we yeah we know what we're getting at so um well, and most of the time, to Neil's point, you know, even those like lower caliber or whatever you want to classify them on or as, they they don't want to create crappy code, right? Right. They don't want to create insecure code. That's not what they're trying to do. Typically, it's the business is driving them. They've got deadlines. They've got features that they have to build. And so they don't have the luxury of a product security team telling them, hey, this needs to be fixed, right? Or it's, you know, two years later, they've been handed this steaming pile of code and, hey, now this is my responsibilities and there are thousands of feature requests and thousands of issues with it. Where does security fall in that? I think it's more of an understaffed problem or, you know, overworked problem than it is a, hey, I just don't care about security problem. Yeah, I mean that's that goes to like product management it's uh, itself, right? That definitely I mean you've got a good point. I've definitely seen that too where it's you know someone running around with their hair on fire times however many other product managers there are with post-it notes all over the wall, um no clear direction, direction changes constantly, um business makes, you know, new decisions on new functionality all the time. Um and basically poor poor and and we talked about this before when we mentioned the phoenix project which is just a book illustration of what we've all seen in real life uh which is like disastrous project management so it's not necessarily you're right it's not always a code the the coder's fault it's very much the organization's fault so how do you affect change in those organizations neil you've dealt with all types of developers Solve this problem so we can got five minutes. (laughs) So at one organization I I was with, uh, our decision was to throw a laugh in front of all of our web applications. Yeah. Um, And looking back, I still think that was the right thing to do. Um, We had, I don't know, a couple hundred small little bullshit apps running in somebody's closet on what knows OS and throwing a laugh in front of all that broke a ton of shit, but it also gave us at least some confidence that we weren't like wide open to the internet. Um, how we did that, I don't know. I mean, we just we just had the support. I, I've been fortunate, I guess. I've worked with all sorts of people, but I always had strong management. 
Yeah. Um, and I, I, that was by no, like, it wasn't my suggestion. That was just the project given to me. So I'm sorry, I don't have an answer. <laughs> no, I, like, it, it's a question that I don't think we have an answer to, right? I mean, most of the orgs that I'm dealing with obviously takes security somewhat seriously because they're willing to pay for an outside person to come in and actually evaluate or make suggestions or look at code, you know, what have you. And, you know, I know that GitHub takes it seriously, obviously, both of you are working there. Um, and most of those large corporations do. It's just when you fall down into that smaller space that it becomes a, a problem, right? They've got one security guy and 50 developers, and the security guy is responsible for endpoint security, uh, you know, firewall, network security, and application security, right? It's just not a situation that they're going to succeed in to prevent vulnerabilities from being introduced into the code. Yeah, which is yet a situation that happens. I mean, that happens all the time. And I, I mean, my personal response is different from like, I, I bet you, Neil, you and I probably have the same outlook, but correct me, if, correct me if I'm wrong. I'm like, if your organization stinks that much, just there's plenty of jobs out there, leave and go find a better one. Like, honestly, that, but that is not solving the root problem, right? I mean, and that's sort of, I mean, because, you know, there's, there are not a ton of AppSec people uh, in, in ratio with the need. So it is easy to move on. But if you want to, if you want to do the, uh, if you want to stick with it, you like the org, even though you're having some issues. Um, I think what every single person does who's on a one or two person team is they, they, it's always the same kind of formula. You set up automation, set up relationships, set up uh, awareness. I mean, those are the factors that I think everyone always does, or those are the things that everyone always does. I'm I'm not sure that any that anything's super novel. I mean, I think the the one thing to add to that is like um, pretty much what you're saying, Neil, which is when you when you do automation, try to make it um, not a crappy solution. Which means if you're an organization, you need to hire somebody uh, with a, both a technical background but also kind of like, uh, I don't want to say strategic, but some level of um, an effective communicator, uh, someone who can build positive relationships. But anyway, so when you talk about automation, um, it's exactly what you said, Neil, not having like crappy, pointless, loud results. So choosing the right tech stack, but also like, uh, you know, chat ops has obviously made our life a lot easier uh, can make developers' lives a lot easier. Um, in, in, in integrating, especially on the AppSec side with like their bug, whatever technology they're using, and this is the same thing you're talking about with pull requests on GitHub. It's the same thing as like interfacing with like their Jira bug tracking system, automating some of what you do with that. Um, whether it be like introducing tickets or alerting on like, hey, this has been in here, this is a priority zero, or this is a high risk or issue or whatever, and it's X amount of days past, you know, our recommended remediation. So uh, I don't know, that's my expanded version on like my normal response, which is like, go find another job. So <laughs> go find a new job. I mean, that's not always a, a you know possibility, obviously, but definitely it's, it is available because of the, the space that we're in. Um, I, the other thing I wanted to bring up was the developer training that you mentioned, Ken, right? Is you've got to find, I mean, it goes back to the relationships we were talking about earlier. You've got to find the people in the organization that care enough 
that you can train them up to be quasi security people, right? Whether, especially on the development team, if you can, you can find a couple of those guys that know security or are interested in it, you know, eventually some of them may pop over to the product security team, but they'll be your biggest advocates and they'll be the first ones to jump on any of those vulnerabilities and any of those tools that you automate so that you're not the one that's having to do that. I mean, in a lot of ways, those people are more important than we are. Yeah. Yeah, I and mean, they're the ones that that's where the rubber hits the road. That's where it actually gets fixed. They're literally doing the reviews too, like before codes merged, right? So um, like we have a good system with automation, right? For for like, but actually there's nothing, there's nothing that's ever going to be a human who knows what they're doing with eyes on code, reviewing it and qu- doing a, a basically a quality control check before that, that actually ships. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we had one more question from Magno again. Uh, this one was, do you think that the OWASP top 10 proactive controls is a good start material to focus on with your dev team? Oh, Jim's going to hate me for not knowing these ones very well. I mean, my, my initial was, oh, well, yeah, he's talking about the OWASP top 10, but the proactive controls are, are, are not as well publicized, right, as the top 10 vulnerabilities or the... Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm looking at it right now. I mean, we can just read it off. Yeah, I'm googling too. <laughs> I mean, get, I don't verify, know why. <laughs> verify for security early and often. I mean, I think that's exactly what we're trying to say. Like, the earlier you catch a bug, the cheaper it is. You can automate it. It's basically free. You can do it as often as you want or continually. Yep. Um, parameterized queries, like yeah, don't mix code and data. SQL injection is an example of that. Parameterized queries help you separate code and data which in theory eliminates SQL injection if your framework actually does real parameterized queries. Command um, injection too, right? I mean, you can parameterize system commands if you needed to do it. Yeah, yeah, I guess that's, yeah, it's mentioning queries specifically, but, you know, I guess. Oh, right, yeah, good, good point. Um, encode data, always contextually validate all inputs. So I'm one of the weird people. I think that input validation is mostly like a user, uh, user-facing feature. Um, other than things like you know, strings of infinite length that can't fit into your database, like you know, people, a lot of times validate input means strip out things that would cause SQL injection or XSS in fields that should not have HTML. And I'm just like, if you encode it and you parameterize it, who cares what it is? I don't know. If, I, I seem to be pretty alone on that thought. <laughs> no, I agree. I, I, when I've gotten pushback, it's usually because I have the same kind of thought. But usually, when I get pushed up, pushback, it's like, "Well, have you thought about second order uh, injection?" And I'm like, "Have you like how many cases have you seen in real life of second order injection being the thing that took?" And like, maybe I'm putting my foot in my mouth, but. Um, and probably should have done my homework before I said that on uh, YouTube. But um, yeah, I don't, I don't, that's not a real huge concern, I guess, for me personally. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, the only argument against that from a, like more recent attacks that are going on is kind of the server side request forgery stuff that goes on. Um, you know, if you aren't clearing out URLs, if you're doing lookups on, host names that are provided and that kind of thing, it, it, it can end up biting you, right? But that that doesn't necessarily fall into an input validation problem. That's a, 
you know, injection problem again. So a boundary problem, a Apple yeah. problem, network security problem. Yeah. There's all sorts of things that have to fail for those to be effective. <laughs> I, like, I, looking over that list of proactive controls, I, I'm glad someone brought that up because that's definitely kind of a formula for, Hey, here's 10 things that I can write into a security program that you know are effective. Right. Um, you know, I am saying, I just thought about this because I am sitting here shitting, kind of shitting on uh, validating input. But to be fair, when we talked about that SSRF, that uh, 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 server-side request forgery issue, I don't know if that was last week or the week before. When I talked about that, like the whole thing was, or at least one one instance, because it was like a bunch of different volumes chained together. But one of them was like the biggest thing was not, uh, correctly blacklisting um, the input. Uh, so, yeah, I guess I can't completely say there's no merit to that. There are cases where everything's contextual. You know, it's, it's not like one rule that everyone has to follow. One thing it's I do like, like about this uh, proactive controls thing as opposed to, like, say, just the generic top 10 is that it's much more developer-focused. Like, I feel like anyone who's done development probably knows most of these terms, but not anyone who's done development knows all of the OWASP top 10 terms. I think insecure direct object reference is a classic example of this sort of disconnect between security and development. But, you know, things like verify for security early and often, implement logging and intrusion. Well, maybe that's not for developers, but at least logging is. Yeah. No, I, yeah, that's a that's a great list, actually. I, I'm glad that you know, Mango. I'm glad you brought that up, and Brian, you too, right? As far as where we implement that and putting some sort of standardization around what goes into your applications is a fairly critical piece of the puzzle, right? Yeah, cool. definitely. So, yeah, we're at 55 minutes, and I don't think we've talked about any of the topics that Ken had on his list. Told you. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe a little bit with the building building oh, security yeah. into a startup, because that's kind of what... Yeah, that's, that is what we're talking about. Right. Right? Yeah. So we I mean, got it, one. Would, it would kind of segue nicely into CSP, because I think someone mentioned uh, security requirements built into their specs. Yeah, yeah and, and exactly, like... Secure headers is a great example of that, but uh, you, please, Neil, you can speak to it. You, obviously, we brought you on to speak to it. So, so I think CSP is a wonderful tool, um, and in terms of building standards into their specs, I think having CSP on all your applications from the start is a great way to. Uh, make your app more secure today, but then also make sure it doesn't become less secure over time. Um, so when I was working at Twitter, we developed secure headers to sort of retroactively apply CSP to all of our applications. And it had it had decent success. We got CSP just about everywhere in terms of Rails land. Uh, maybe it wasn't the strongest policy, but it was something. Um, but what I thought was really interesting was when Twitter was decomposing from Rails to the Scala framework, um, not from day one, but like not from day one, but like close enough to day one where they started serving like non-API traffic from the Scala framework. We made sure that we integrated 
a secure headers like feature into it, and that we had CSP and all the other headers deploy, de uh, applied by default. So every single new HTML endpoint that came up had all the, the headers by default. They didn't have to do anything. It had a strict CSP that was like relatively locked down, but didn't make it so that everyone had to jump through some hoop. Like we whitelisted the Twitter CDN for styles on everybody. We whitelisted you know unsafe inline CSS for everyone because it was just not practical at the time. Um, but we did not allow eval or inline script or third-party JavaScript or Flash or um, Java applets or any of these other things that were just like really scary at the time. So that became our security standard. And everyone pretty much was able to work with that. We gave people the ability to opt out of things, but every time they did, our automation would catch it. You know, uh, one thing people always ask is like, do we have a breakman for Scala? It's no, we had something called regular expressions. Um, that went very, very far because when you build things secure by default and you make people opt out of the secure way of doing things, you don't need static analysis. You just need grep. Um, so we could basically figure out every time someone was changing the CSP and we could say like, that's fine, that's not fine. Hey, why don't you just throw that under our CDN instead of you know sourcing it from Google? Um, the other nice thing is nobody was able to add any third party integrations to our site without us knowing about it. Um, you know, people say that CSP is about stopping uh, cross-site scripting, but it's also about stopping third-party integrations that you did not approve. Uh, I see multiple people tweet about this, about so-and-so's team that wants to increase monthly active users has thrown some shady third-party thing, um, and guess what? It doesn't work, and they don't you know, necessarily know how to work around it. Security finds out no more third-party integration. Um, so, so getting that in from like day one pretty much means that if anyone wants to do something that is not by your standards, like they have to ask, not ask for permission, but they, it's really hard to sneak it by you. And if you keep that in from day one, you don't have to put any work into like making it work. Like retroactive, retroactively applying CSP is incredibly painful, but like building in from day one is so easy and keeping it secure is fairly easy for the most part as well. So it's been probably, uh, I don't know, five five months maybe I've, I've been on the team. And in that time, because of what specifically th what you've built and the fact that when a CSP exception needs to be made, we, get, we do get an alert. I mean, we've detected, like you said, several third-party integrations, a couple efforts that were like much larger in scope than uh, this, than we were aware of until, until we got that alert. Um, and just a ton of good questions and conversations around changes. So like what Neil's saying, I can confirm actually really works super well. So for what it's worth. So, so I mean, for somebody in a product security role that doesn't have CSP or hasn't like implemented it before, where do you recommend that they go to actually start? Um, so I think, if you're okay with it, I think you should use a reporting service like reporturi.io. Um, okay. CSP has a reporting functionality, and you can send it off to a third party. And Scott actually does a pretty good job of filtering out a lot of the garbage reports. Because anyone who's ever looked at all of their CSP reports can tell you that 80% of them are absolute garbage and are just a waste of time and space. 
So he does a lot of, uh, of the filtering there. And you can sort of, uh, you know, group and sort and search over all your violations such that you can tune your policy over time. Um, I think that's a really good thing to do if you just sort of have a massive application that you don't really understand all the nooks and crannies of. Um, but if you have a smaller application and maybe you have someone that knows all the nooks and crannies, I definitely suggest installing, um, there's dozens of different browser extensions that let you just modify the policy for a certain page. Okay. I just use Casper Enforcer because it's what I've been using since it was written. Um, it's really nice. It has all the directives broken down. It starts with a sensible default policy. Um, and then you sort of click around on the page, see what's broken, look at your console, fix each individual warnings, come up with like some baseline policy you can apply throughout your entire application. Um, that's, first of all, that's going to be too lenient because let's say you have like one page that has inline script. Well, you don't want to necessarily open up for the entire app, but just to get it going, just get a policy that works for your entire application. And then from there, figure out what you want to tighten down. For example, maybe you want to remove that unline in, uh, unsafe inline script for that one page. So you make a dynamic policy just for that one page and I protected the rest of your app. Then look at the third parties you might be using. You might be pulling in jQuery from a third party source when you really don't need to be doing that. Um, so then you can move it to your CDN and reduce the number of third parties that are in your policy. Um, because pretty much every time you have a third party in your policy, that's either an exfil avenue or it's just you're opening yourself up to cross-site scripting. Um, like GitHub CSP, the only thing, the only place where a lot of load JavaScript is from our CDN. Um, you know, people, uh, CSP is hard. Um, it's very hard. There's a lot of there's a lot of edge cases that I won't even get into. Um, once you've sort of eliminated all your third parties, I mean, you really uh, you, you really get into the weeds. You start looking at the sort of less common directives, like uh, blocking mixed content or upgrading and secure requests or your form action attribute, which says where you can post form twos, forms too, because that's not governed by your default source. I mean, it goes, the rabbit hole goes deep, but the, the gist is find a policy that works for everything and then start sniping out the individual pieces that you don't like of your policy. And if you want me to review a policy, I'm happy to tell you what's wrong with it uh, or where at least I would focus on. I think uh, Ken and I were having a conversation this week and I was kind of like, well, that's not an ideal policy because this, this, and this. And it's totally not obvious. And I only know these things because I've been doing CSP for like seven years now. And I know all these, these yeah, edge cases. Neil was the first person I reached. I, I mean, first and only person I reached out to you about this. Cause I'm like, oh, and what's weird is I had this question and Neil, you know, you knew it. But what's funny is it, then like the next day, um, cause this was specifically around uh, setting this with uh, helmet, uh, and uh, yeah, the very next day, the 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 author of helmet reaches out to you and I over Twitter. Super random. I mean, I hadn't talked to him. You hadn't talked to him, right? I don't know the person. Yeah. So that just was very strange, but very cool. Have you? We were uh, talking about a, a very esoteric part of CSP as well. Yeah. <laughs> it was super random, but. Yeah, I mean, because that was the gist, right? It was like, oh, it's not super obvious, and um, the helmet documentation could could use an update to explain that. And the next day, and I still haven't reached back, taken out, taken him up on his offer to reach out. I don't know if you have yet. Nope. Uh, cool. Note to self: 
let's follow up on that. So yeah, CSP. Yeah. <laughs> like quite I mean, the horror stories. It does. It, it sounds a lot like you know implementing a security program as it is, right? You know what we were talking about with tooling previously. Hey, let's make it wide, make it as low impact as possible initially, and then tune it to what you want it to be, right? Um, I, it's, I mean, it's always a slow approach for security. Not necessarily slow in time, but one thing at a time. The, the, the more items that you throw at the developers, the less likely it is that any of them are going to get fixed. So, Well, I feel like at least I get the feeling that the whole security and development thing, like we're moving in the right, the right direction. Yeah. Like 10 years ago, like even what we're talking about today would have probably been like impossible for whatever reason. Like, like things are always going into the right direction and to like make a terrible like tie back to CSP, like CSP is getting easier to apply as well. And the easier CSP is to apply, the more people will do it, the better off we are. Um, like for example, the whole CSP is introducing this, uh, it's not introducing, it exists. This concept of like strict dynamic where like as long as your script tag has a nonce that matches what's in the header, like that script tag kind of gets carte blanche. So if it like loads another resource, or like let's say it loads a dynamic resource, you don't have to account for that in your CSP. And like while that may or may not open you up to other kinds of attacks, at least you've got a CSP and you've eliminated your inline injection attacks, for example. Yeah. So, so I like the, you know, things are getting better. Yeah, definitely. I mean, and that's where you see, right? You know, just the fact that we're talking product security now instead of just strict like consultants and application security, right? You know, we're, you know, as a security org, we're moving more and more into the development space. And half of what we're talking about here, we have to have developers to actually implement this tooling, right? You know, how much of what we do on a daily basis is actually code versus just turning on some tool and running it, which it was 10, 12 years ago. Yeah. And analyzing the results. Yeah. <laughs> By hand, manually. Up up a hill in snow without shoes. <laughs> Ken's been around for a long time. <laughs> You're the one with with the, the silver in your hair, so yeah, that's uh, yeah, that, that's what kids do, does to you. Don't worry, you'll get there. <laughs> yeah. Only got the one. Um awesome. Cool. I, I know that uh, I know we're running um, over, but that's fine. We can always go over as much as we uh, as much as we want. It's, it's our show. So, um, but I did want to make sure that uh, we had cut. Were there any topics? I because mean, I, I we hadn't talked about the duo um, sample piece. I don't think we talked about that yet. Have we? No. Okay. Because I think we had just the reason I say this. I remember us chatting about it briefly before we started. Wasn't well, I was verifying it was before we started. I'm that's yeah. my memory sucks. So uh cool. So if anyone hadn't heard, um and let me drop the link in here, but basically duo duo uh Kelby Lud Ludwig at Duo had um published a a vulnerability or a finding uh in how XML essentially parses uh pieces of a sample message, right? So 
Meaning, um, I think the examples they used for Ruby and for Python were is rexml for uh ruby but I, the what was it l lxml or something like that yeah, yeah lxml for python so those um uh those parsers uh break down um no basically here's the gist you've got a uh what should be an ad just an attribute and a string what you would consider just a string value um, but because it, because of the way that the XML specs or the way these XML parsers were written, um, if there are comments inside of uh, that XML attribute, they will be allowed. So meaning um, if it was changed in some way, it doesn't, doesn't me- mean that the signature, when I say changed in some way, I mean specifically something added in the comments. Um, it doesn't change the signature of the, you know, the, the XML message. What it does do, however, is alter the way that that uh, XML attributes parsed. So the way that it works is, um, and I think the example they had was like K Ludwig and they did like K La comment wig. And when broken down by the parser, by the, the, LXML parser, I think is the example they showed. It's actually three parts um, versus like one long string. So meaning you can effectively, you can bypass um, uh, checks, the XML, the XML like character, or sorry, the string checks uh, by injecting some additional data into like something like the name ID. So it is effectively a SAML bypass, or that's the way that it's um, presented in this article but through uh, specifically XML parsing, um, canonicalization, and I feel like there's something else. There's like a, there's, I believe three parts to this that make it work. Uh, there's the canonicalization. I think they even said three parts. Yeah, SAML responses that contain strings that identify the authenticating user. That's how SAML works. Uh, XML canonicalization. Um, so we talked about that. Um, and then text extraction. Yeah, so that's the three parts. That's the how XML parses it, uh, the fact that it, that in some cases uh, comments are ignored, and uh, obviously that the name ID in this situation in their example is what you, uh, yeah, the name ID. Yeah. Uh, Basically, XML parsing sucks. Go figure. Go figure. <clears throat> and it, you know, I know this is a SAML specific vulnerability or exploit that they're talking about, but if you start to extrapolate that out on one of the Slack channels that I'm in, somebody was talking about it being like, guess what? This isn't just a SAML issue. Yeah. Like, anybody that uses this, these XML parsers, you could probably you could take advantage of this. And there's no telling on what you can do. It all depends on what that what that app is doing with that XML parsed text stream, right? So yeah, there, there's going to be more that comes out of this one. It's not just the SAML issue that we're dealing with. Shouldn't those control characters have been escaped too? Like presuming if this came from some like user input, shouldn't those? Well, no, because it's it's uh, considered, like because they, I, I, they have the two specs, right? They have the like, you can completely ignore so yes, you're right, but I think that they, what they were relying on were the specification. 
actually, I think what he noted in there in that article was that it was very unintuitive and not well documented that that's how the spec works. Like the whole with comments or without comments um, piece to that. So like nobody probably expected basically those characters to ever exist inside of that because they assumed that the signatures, the signature would not match up with the actual data provided, I think is the gist. Yeah, that was definitely eye opening to me. I did not think that would have been possible. Which is why it's so cool. I mean, you got to love the duo research group, right? <clears throat> There's a lot of cool stuff that they're working on, both from a defensive and an offensive perspective. So I can't wait to see what else this affects. Now, granted, like, uh, so the SAML authors, like, uh, you know, that the, they named a couple. <laughs> And by the way, uh, Evan Johnson pointed out that like, even though there's this um, pretty heavy disclosure timeline originating, the whole thing started from in December, uh, on December 18th of last year to now. And uh, so everybody should have known, but like the link Evan uh, provided was like a Python SAML library where I think he said it was something like four o'clock this morning. They were <laughs> making the changes to the, the library. Anyways, tangent aside, everyone's making the updates to the sample parsing library, but I think that you hit on a good point, like totally expect for this to affect uh, other things and for there to be more to come with this. Yeah. <clears throat> Jerry summarized it as hacking, doing what, no one ever expected until it works, right? <laughs> Which is a pretty good description, right? You know, we, we think about all the payloads that we throw at things, but it's always kind of that expected character set, even if it's like our expected character set. But yeah, I, there's always, there always seems to be some little way around it or something else that pops up that we didn't think about. Yeah, and that's the thing with stuff like this when it gets released, it makes... Uh... It, it opens up another avenue of thought for like researchers and just for the rest of us, like, Oh, that's something that I should think about. Like whether it's in your product or whether it's, you know, you're a researcher looking for bugs in some, some project. Um, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Cool. So. No, good deal. And I mean, we've been going for, well, I was going to ask Neil any additional thoughts on this before we cl cl close that topic out. XML is garbage. I don't know. I mean, <laughs> Why I, are you people still using it? <laughs> it? Even when it's not like a problem with XML itself, yeah, it's just like the Rails apocalypse always seemed to involve XML problems. Yeah. Um, XXE attacks, uh, all these, I mean, SAML is itself like a vulnerability. <laughs> so you don't think soap's going to make a comeback? Oh God. I remember writing soap and then forgetting to escape my quotes and angle brackets. I would break my XML documents. <laughs> Wisdles all day long. You joke, but sometimes they're nice. <laughs> <laughs> Brian brings up a good point. A few episodes ago, we said no one would use soap and XML. Well, Oh dang. There we go. Well, this is why. This is why we should. We, maybe that was uh, more of where it should go, and this was. This is a good example of why. So I'm going to spin that. There you go. Good call.
All right. Well, good. I mean, we've been going for what hour 15 or something like that. Neil, any, any last minute advice or thoughts before we, we call it for this week? I'll just double down on XML is garbage. Is that right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> you guys watch Jesus and Mira? I don't know if you do, but they do this thing at the end of every interview where it's like a, a rainbow and it's their, their catchphrase. And that, that would be my catchphrase for the day. XML is garbage. I'll see what I can figure out as we post this on YouTube. Maybe you know sure. what? We're going we're gonna to put that in the description, Seth. Yeah. <laughs> XML is garbage. Let's work that into the title somehow. For sure. Right. For sure. For sure. All right. We will. Good call. Neil, uh, don't jump off when we stop the broadcast. Um, but uh, yeah, thank, thank you for coming on. And like, I wish people could sit with Neil. And if you go to Locomocosec, you can. But uh, if you if you could just kind of listen to to some of Neil's experiences, uh, if you ever get the chance to meet him, uh, hang out, uh, absorb some of this guy's knowledge. He's he's uh, and, and experiences. Uh, so Neil, thank you for coming on. Yeah, thanks, Neil. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, we'll close it out. Thanks, everyone. Thank you.